In almost every country in the world, you will find uh, beers. I mean, there are countries where alcohol is forbidden, but otherwise, uh, usually, wherever you go, you find you'll you'll find a, a beer. I mean, a bar with beers, of course. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a weekly series looking at unfamiliar places across the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brute with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. September. Now that feels quite weird. Time is, as they say, marching everyone would, and over here it will soon be winter. The mornings are already lagging. It's daylight by 6am now rather than 4am, so my dawn-breaking runs are having to get later and later. At some point I'll have to bite the bullet and go running at a normal time around normal people, and I don't want to do that. Not that I'm running much at all at the moment due to my eagerness to push myself too hard and end up getting calf strains which set me back a few days. You'd have thought I'd have learned by now not to do that and be happy with a five to seven kilometres jog. But oh no, I have to push it and keep pushing it and then my leg goes oof after about five miles and I end up walking back home. Which, when you're dressed in funky lurid leggings and barefoot, looks even weirder than running, to be honest. I did go for a walk the other day though, albeit wearing hiking trousers rather than funky leggings. I was still barefoot though, obviously. It wasn't the long multi-day hike I'd been hoping for over the summer, but instead a few hours in the Peak District wandering over Stanage Edge and Burbage Rocks. They're not too far from me, about eight miles or so. Uh, it's a simple bus ride, but it was great to get outside for a change. It was a nicely sunny and warm day, although the route goes along what is effectively a cliff top, hence the edge in the title, and it was pretty windy on the tops of those exposed rock faces. The total route I walked was about six and a half miles, although there was an extra five at the end getting back to a convenient bus stop. Under normal circumstances, I'd have gone to the Fox House pub for a drink or two and waited for a bus, but it looked quite busy, and I'm avoiding busy pubs during the pandemic, so I walked onwards. It's one of my favourite local places, is um, Stanage Edge. The path itself is pretty comfortable. It's mostly compacted soil, grass or boulders, with any little spots of gravel. The views out over the Hope Valley are pretty and vast, and the colours of the landscape and the myriad of weird rock formations are quite stunning. It's also a fairly easy route. It goes along the top of the ridge, so aside from the up and down sections at either end, it's reasonably flat and manageable, and even those sections aren't too steep or exhausting. I mean, it's not suitable for wheelchairs, I must say, but not much of the countryside is. That said, Burbage rocks are, as here, the path along the bottom of the cliff has been created that's wide and flat. I didn't go on it, though, because I was having too much fun scrambling over the top ridges. And because of gravel. There weren't too many people up there either, just a handful of other hikers and a few families. I did make sure I was there on a weekday though, rather than a weekend. I don't think it would have been quite so socially distanced on Sunday. Anyway, some stats for my walk in case you're interested. Uh, Time spent walking, a little under four hours on the hills anyway, about half of that again added on that was getting back to the bus stop. Number of rabbits frightened, one. Number of dead sheep encountered, one. A number of toes scraped due to dyspraxia. I kind of lost count at seven. Wrong paths taken? Two. Photos and videos taken? 
about 70. Photos and videos taken of my feet for use in a future mythical OnlyFans account. Eh, maybe about half of that. Hmm. Anyway, the weather's still due to be pretty good for the rest of the week, at least, but we'll see if I manage to get out again. I'm hoping so. It's just a question of finding somewhere convenient and appropriate. But we'll see. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since my last podcast. And while this is a relatively normal thing, as long-term followers are very much aware, this time the delay has been completely out of my control. It's been because of computer issues. See, a week last Friday I was merrily doing some browsing on my laptop and everything suddenly started going slow. I didn't think anything of it until I got a blue screen of death. No matter, I thought, I'll just let it reboot. It didn't. Instead, it came up with an IPv4 error. It was trying to boot from a network, which implied that it couldn't boot from the hard drive. Did I have a dodgy disk? Well, I managed to get it to boot eventually, though I did lose the ability to type on the keyboard, so I had to pull up the accessibility options and use the on-screen virtual keyboard, but still managed to log in, transferred a couple of files off, and did a disk status check. As an aside, most of the work I do is on flash drives and portable hard drives, so there's very little I keep on and only on my laptop, so if anything crashes, I haven't lost much at all. Anyway, a couple of hours later it finished, and rebooted. But this time didn't even get beyond the manufacturer's splash screen logo. I took it to a chap my landlady knows who runs a computer repair drop-in centre. He had a look at it, tested a few different components, and concluded that my hard drive was probably actually quite fine. The problem seems to be that the motherboard has forgotten the hard drive exists. It's not saying that it's not there, or that there's a problem with it. Rather, in much the same way as I lose hats, it's saying that the concept of the hard drive is one that it just simply doesn't understand. I suspect I may need a new motherboard. Nice. Anyway... After a week with no computer, and I really hate typing on my phone for long periods, on Sunday I went back to my real house and brought back my old desktop. It seems to work, albeit it doesn't like the Wi-Fi, but then I always had that problem every now and then anyway. I prefer desktops to laptops and tablets, it's just that I can't go to the pub with them. Not that I'm going to the pub anyway at the moment. This leads nicely onto the main subject of this week's pod. Beer. People on Twitter have always asked me, why am I not a beer blogger? given that I'll often post images of beer on Twitter or Instagram stories, or I'll be in a pub during a Twitter travel chat, or I'll often mention beer as being a common part of my travels and my life. And while it's true that I like beer, and I used to go to pubs a lot because I found it easier to write and blog in them, especially those without Wi-Fi, without being distracted by the internet or domestic things, and it's very hard to spend two hours in a pub drinking only hot chocolate, the truth is I could never be a proper beer blogger. I want to enjoy my beer and use it as a method to blog rather than having to worry about every sip, every taste and make detailed notes on every beer I try. Beer is what I have when I do other things. I mean, that's not to say that I don't make notes on every beer I try. For years, I was doing just that. I'd be in a pub and writing anyway, so I'd just quickly write down notes on what the beer was that I was having tasted of. It makes natural sense, therefore, that one of the few apps I have on my phone is one that does exactly that. It's called Untapped, and it allows me to look up any given beer, see what other people think of it, make my own tasting notes on it, and give it a rating. The difference is, I guess, it's not my primary purpose when I'm blogging. I don't then go away and do a 500-word blog post about each specific beer or brewery. I don't worry that people are going to be hanging on every word about what beers to try. I don't worry about getting the tasting notes wrong, because heaven knows the chaos that would ensue if I wrote tastes of strawberry and peach when other people think that it's more raspberry and apricot. As an aside, my senses of taste and smell aren't terribly good anyway. I actually find it quite hard to differentiate between the smell of hops and the smell of weed. 
just be mindful of that if I ever start to brew my own beer. Weirdly, I have had beer that was brewed with hemp seeds. There's a brewery in Andorra called, perhaps revealingly enough, Marijuana, and one of their USPs is a heavy use of the wacky backy. Unfortunately, in my personal opinion, they forgot that beer is supposed to have other tastes, and the resulting brews are a bit bland. I've grown up with beer. My uncle, and before him, his dad, brewed their own. Um, I have actually dabbled in homebrew myself, but it's an awful lot of effort and preparation for someone like me. If I had more dedication, I probably would, but I'm just not wired that way. Plus, with the proliferation of craft beers of all manner and weird and wacky tastes, I don't really need to experiment, as someone's probably already done it. Strawberry daiquiri sour beer? Popples Brewery, just outside Gothenburg, does that for an half percent. It was not my favourite. Want something more like a milkshake? There's plenty of those around. The Garden Brewery in Zagreb does a milkshake IPA. It's 6.2% fruity and a lot of lactose. Fancy something darker? Caramel and chocolate stout, maybe. Add in some peanut butter, ramp it up to 14%, and Neon Raptor Brewery in Nottingham UK does that for you under the name of Centaur Army. It took me an hour to drink half a pint of it. I can also taste the difference between bottled beer and the same beer on tap, though I'd be hard-pushed to explain what the difference is. Another reason I'm not a beer blogger, I guess. I just don't care for the specific details. Tapped beer tastes livelier and fresher, but I know that's just personal taste. Also, beer on keg is different again. It's colder and smoother, and that can affect the taste a little as well. If you had the same beer in all three formats in front of you, you might be able to sense the subtle differences. I've found while most beer tastes better on cask and tap, that might be just because that's what I'm used to. Some beer does taste better to me in bottles, Newcastle Brown Ale and Witchwood's Hobgoblin being two cases in point, but again that might be just because that's how I'm used to drinking it. The other thing that can affect a beer's taste is how it's stored, and this is definitely true for cask and tap beer. There was a brewery in Nottingham that I never really liked any of the beers of until my local micropub had one on tap, and it tasted better there than anywhere else I'd ever had it, the only real difference being on how it was stored before it reached my glass. A good pub has a much bigger effect on the taste of a beer than you might imagine. Now, travel. And I've never been anywhere specifically for the beer. I joke that that's the main reason I first went to Belgium, but obviously Belgium is an incredibly interesting, historic and worthwhile country to visit even without the beer, just that the beer is another thing that pushes the country higher in my highly opinionated list. Another of my favourite countries in the world is Benin, where I don't remember having any beer at all, so I'd like to think that I'm much more rounded and three-dimensional than maybe my Twitter followers sometimes have the impression of. Obviously, though, while I'm in a country, it makes sense to try the local stuff. Given also that my travel style and cultural preferences tend to mean in the evenings I don't do anything much other than sit around writing or doing stuff online, I naturally tend towards hostel communal areas or local pubs. Places where I can just sit casually and do my own thing in a relaxed environment without having to concentrate too much. On my interrail trip around Europe last autumn, for instance, because I was in a different town most evenings, it was the perfect way to chill after a long day of exploration and be ready for the next adventure. And it meant that I could sample different beers from across Europe. Not always local ones, though. I went to a craft beer bar in Rennes in northwest France and they had 11 or 12 beers on, none of them French. A couple of them were British, almost certainly Northern Monk Brewery. I come across them a lot on my travels. There were a couple of Spanish, a couple of Italian and one Greek, but no French beers. I made up for it next day in a different bar, though. One person who did go for a specific trip to visit a brewery for beer was Stephen from Stephen on the Move, who tells us his experience of going to the Pilsner Brewery in the Czech Republic. 
I'm somebody who enjoys craft beer a lot. I've traveled to various places to visit breweries, uh, to in particular, you know, try really good beers that I've learned about. Uh, one thing that I did two years ago now was I traveled to Pilsen in the Czech Republic to tour Pilsner Urkel, which is a very large brewery and, of course, is typically something I wouldn't visit uh, because it's such a large macro-industrial company and I tend to shy away from places like that. However, Pilsner Urkel is unique for a few reasons, partially because it is the brewery that actually created the Pilsner style of beer. And so it is the brewery then that is responsible for that style existing throughout the world. Uh, it, of course, is what's known as a Czech Pilsner. The Germans have a similar but slightly different style, the German Pils. And I also went to the visit the brewery because Pilsner Urkel was a beer that my dad always enjoyed drinking. Uh, he really loved hoppy, bitter beer, and that was in particular one of his favorites. And so when I had the opportunity, because I was visiting Prague, to take a day trip from Prague out to Pilsen and tour the brewery, I, I really couldn't pass up on that opportunity. And despite admittedly not favoring that style of beer, the brewery tour is really awesome. They have an amazing restaurant there as well. Uh, you also, at the end of the tour, get to sample beer directly from the cask that they store underneath uh, in, their, in their tunnels there. And that as an opportunity as a beer drinker, whether you particularly like Pilsner or Kell as a beer, is just a really cool and unique experience. One may ask, of course, which country has the best beer? That's a horrible question, as it very much depends on your personal tastes. Plus, of course, most countries produce more beer than one could ever hope to drink in one visit, even somewhere like Andorra. Untapped, for instance, lists over 15 breweries in the country. And although I imagine most of them are very small, even if they only produce one or two beers on average, you're still not going to get through them all on an average holiday there. I can tell you, though, the countries from which, on average, I've had better beer than others. I mean, to be fair, it is Belgium that takes the crown for me. My favourite beer of all time is uh, Belgian beer. It's Panipot from Distrus Brewery. It's rich, dark, chocolatey, thick, and about 10.5%. And a little tale about it. Every so often, a few friends of mine go on a real ale pub crawl in different towns and cities in the UK, and we share beers. One time, a couple of years back, we went round Sheffield and had had, I think, 35 beers between us. We drink halves, don't worry. But the last pub we went into had this um, Panipot in a, I think it was on tap actually. I told my friends, we will drink this one last. You will not want anything more after it because of its strength, but it will be the best beer that you have all evening. And you know, they agreed that it was. Other countries that make decent beer in my experience though are Netherlands, the UK, Estonia, very surprisingly Greece, and despite a couple of weird fetishes they seem to have, the USA. But I'll talk about those specifically shortly. Claire, from the Curious Claire website, told me about her favourite country for beer, which may well surprise you. So as you know, I really like my beers. I'll seek out new local beers every time I travel, and I'll often get asked where is my favourite country to go for beer, and the answer always shocks people. 
They expect me to say Germany or Belgium, but in actual fact, it's Poland. I've been to Poland several times now, and on each trip I get more and more addicted to Polish beer. Poland is actually Europe's third largest beer producer behind Germany and the UK. There are only three companies who control about 80% of the Polish beer market. I would tell you my favourite Polish beers, but my Polish pronunciation is so bad I don't want to attempt it publicly. Countries where I've been less than impressed have included the Czech and Slovak republics, New Zealand and Italy. That's not to say the beers there aren't worth drinking. They are, of course. Rather than in my experience, and importantly to my tastes, there are countries which, on average, produce better beer. The problem I have with much of Central Europe is, no matter how artisanally it is produced, the style of beer, known as lager, never really hits the spot for me. It's drinkable, but fairly bland, and lager-style beers tend to be most popular across the whole region. I prefer the darker beers, the stouts, the porters, the milds. I've also developed a tongue for strong IPAs, the sort of beer that you have a few sips off and go, you know what, for health and safety reasons, I might not leave this seat for a while. It's possible to go too far with this, but again, that's something I've found specifically to the USA, which I'll go on to more shortly. There are some countries I've been to that don't really produce beer at all, so the ones available are bland, mass-produced, weak summer lagers. Vanuatu, I'm looking at you here. Although granted the Tusker beer with lemon they had was better than the Carver, the local drink made from the roots of the Piper methysticum plant and strained through a sock. Surprisingly. I managed to find canonically the only craft beer brewery in Nepal, or rather a restaurant selling beers from it. In Nepal's case, the combination of not being a country known for hops, coupled with being so far from the sea so importing raw materials is expensive, means that beer isn't generally drank there. At the other end of the scale is West Africa. Now, a lot of beer is drunk there, but most of it is the same one. Nigeria is the third biggest market in the world for Guinness. So much, in fact, that Nigerian Guinness is a different drink to Irish Guinness brewed with local ingredients, including sorghum, an African cereal crop, and it's exported across the region. It's particularly popular in Ghana. It's quite a bit sweeter than the Guinness that I'm used to, and not quite as thick. It surprised me recently to find my local corner shop in Sheffield was selling bottles of it. The most expensive beer I've ever had was unsurprisingly perhaps, in Iceland. I wasn't expecting it to be any other way, of course, but while I was there I had to sample some beer. I read about a craft beer pub in Reykjavik, so popped in and had a five-glass beer flight. Each flight was 200ml, and most of the beers worked out at around four to five pound a flight. One of them, however, was almost twice as expensive. Had I had had a pint of it, it would have set me back about £29. Called Hrthraskilia number 54 from Borg Brewery, it was an imperial porter, 11.5%, so a pint of it would have been a bit mm, excessive anyway. And it was, fortunately, one of the best beers I've had. Rich, whiskey, watery, dark strong, and I described it as reverent. It's also apparently no longer in production. That particular brewery has a tendency to make beers as one-offs. Conversely, the cheapest beer I've had, that's a tough question. I'm not 100% sure. I don't imagine the bottle I had in candy in Sri Lanka was that expensive, but the cheapest that I'm 100% aware of was the one I had on tap in a pub in Bukhara in Uzbekistan. I've no idea what the beer was called, but it was a reasonably drinkable lager style, but without the annoying metallic taste, and it was on tap, and almost certainly therefore brewed locally. It was sold in a large plain room called The Pub, and worked out at around 65p a pint. I had three of them. One of the countries I've had a lot of beer in, as I mentioned earlier, is the USA. Now, the USA has always had a bit of a bad reputation when it comes to beer. 
When many people here in the UK imagine American beer, what first comes to mind is the mass-produced tasteless lagers like Coors and Budweiser and the like. And while they are everywhere, this is a country where money and advertising is king after all, digging even only slightly deeper brings up a whole world of craft beer, something to everyone's tastes. Part of the reason for this reputation lies with the Prohibition era of the 20s and early 30s. While during it alcohol was technically banned, people came up with creative ways to both brew and sell it, hence all the stories about bootlegging, hiding often homemade moonshine or imported alcohol in the lining of the boot and selling it on in liquid drug deals. This was much easier to do with spirits than beer, so the beer market basically collapsed and only the really largest beer manufacturers survived, because with enough clout and money, law becomes a flexible beast. And I guess it never really recovered. While beer did come back, these larger companies dominated and controlled the market and even ended up swallowing each other, to the extent that by the late 1970s, there were less than 100 breweries in the entire country. While home brewing was legalised in many states in 1978, it's really only been in the last 10 years that the craft beer market has exploded. And although there are now just under 6,500 breweries in the country... You've got to remember that still around 88% of the US beer market as a whole is controlled by three companies. Anheuser-Busch, uh, which run Budweiser, Stella Artois and Beck's. Miller Coors, which run Miller and Coors, obviously, and also own Foster's. And Pabst, which run Pabst Blue Ribbon, Valentine's and Schlitz. Pabst are much more of a domestic than an international firm. And they also double with craft brewing more than the other two. Although it has to be said, Anheuser-Busch do own a number of small breweries, including Elysian in Seattle and Camden Town in London. But it's the craft brews I'm more interested in, as I'm sure you are. This is a travel podcast after all, not a social history lecture. Although, hmm. So I've been across a first swathe of the USA in the last few years, and I've sampled a lot of local craft beer there. While doing so, I've made a couple of interesting observations. The first is in that sheer number of breweries and beers on offer. So in the UK, a micropub may have between three and five beers on tap and a small selection of bottles. A brew pub or decent real ale pub will maybe stretch into the teens. The brewery tap for Lincoln Green Brewery in Hucknall, the station, has possibly 15. And the Lincoln Chipotle real ale pub in Nottingham City Centre often has about the same plus a handful of craft beers on keg. This is small fry compared to the USA. One craft beer place I visited in Albuquerque, New Mexico, had 98. Another in Austin, Texas, 105. A bar in Portland, Oregon, had a beer menu that stretched to four pages, the like of which I'd not seen since I was in Belgium. Now, choice is all very well, but the next thing that becomes incredibly apparent is the average beer strength. There is a phrase that's often cited called session ale. This refers to a beer which through a combination of alcoholic strength, an easy drinking texture and an uncomplicated taste, could be drank for a whole session, which is the whole time you're in the pub, without any major effects. I mean, sure, you'll be over the limit to drive, but you won't feel drunk drunk, just pleasantly tipsy. In the UK, you'll happily get beers self-defining as session ales that are light, hoppy and about 35 to 4.3% alcohol. On the beer list in that bar in Portland, session ales were given their own section. The lowest strength of them was 5%. In my experience, finding beers in the 6-8% range is not only not uncommon, but in fact pretty much standard. Beer is made strong in the USA, or at least stronger than Brits are maybe used to. This is tempered somewhat by the wider variety of tastes and styles available. Peanut butter porter. 
American craft brewers don't seem scared to experiment with all manner of flavours and concepts, unlike the British who seem to prefer to stick to simple variants on bitters, miles, porters and IPAs. That's not to say that American brewers don't do simple beers, but of course this being the USA, they have to take things just that little bit further. And this may all come back to prohibition again, because beer is such a new concept to the USA, they don't have those centuries of tradition, the long period of time where beer has always been made that way, and therefore always should be. So they're more inclined to experiment, to go, ooh, what happens if we put this in the tub? Take the IPA, for instance. A strong, hoppy beer, originally designed in such a way to preserve beer for long journeys between the UK and India, hence its name India Pale Ale. These beers tend to be quite bitter. Indeed, there's a characteristic of beer called the IBU, the International Bittering Unit, that measures just how bitter a beer is. Tellingly, industry professionals are the only people who seem to care about this figure in the UK, You never see it listed in pubs on menus or beer clips. However, this figure is everywhere in the USA, openly listed alongside the alcoholic strength. Now, most beer will tend to range between about 10 and 50 on this scale, but some brewers in the USA have made it a task to make beers with as high an IBU figure as possible, occasionally breaching the magic 100 mark, which makes the beer to me feel more like you're drinking the entire brewery, warts (laughs) and all. It's decidedly unpleasant, to me anyway. Note that you sometimes see high IBU figures on darker beers, but that's less noticeable because darker beers have more malt and flavour, so often need more hops to counterbalance it. Another thing I personally find unpleasant, although with a lot of beer your mileage may definitely vary, and there's certainly a market for it, is the proliferation of what are termed sour beers. There was a phase of this in the UK a couple of years back, but I've not seen many recently. In the USA, they're everywhere. These are beers made with a modicum of wild yeast, as opposed to the yeast being added in a controlled and measured way, and they tend to have a very distinctive acidic or tart taste, akin to, you know, eating an acid or lemon drop type sweet that you may have had when you were a kid. They're a very distinctive and acquired taste, and let's be honest, it's one I've never acquired. Maybe I'm in the minority. They're also very popular in Belgium as lambics, but as you know, with Belgian beer there's enough variety that means I can just avoid them to a large extent anyway. With so much beer available though in the USA, you're sure to find at least one you like in every pub, and pretty much every pub has at least one of each type of beer. Flights are common, more so than in the UK, and these flights you normally have between 5 and 8 samples, 4 or 5 fluid ounces, or about 120 to 150 ml, of any of the beers on tap, or you can just have a pint. Now, a US pint is smaller than a UK pint. It's 16 fluid ounces or about 473 mil, as opposed to the 568 mil or about 19.5 fluid ounces. Though, when the beer is as strong as it is, that's no bad thing. Note also that the UK concept of half and third pints just doesn't seem to exist in the USA. It's either flights or pints. Even where it does exist, you often have an unusual pricing policy. One pub I went to in Albuquerque offered 12 ounce, 355 mil for $5.50, 16 ounce, 473 mil for $6.50, and 20 ounce, 591 mil for $7.50. See, I'd normally buy two or three of the half pints in the UK, which is 284 mil or just under 10 ounces, but it's just more cost effective in the USA to drink pints. Don't worry though, many pubs seem to have a three pint limit. Which sounds harsh, but you try drinking three pints of 9% double IPA and seeing how well you can walk afterwards. Depressingly, drink driving is surprisingly common, and there doesn't seem to be as big a stigma about it as there is in the UK. Though my friend Kylie, who at the time was a British immigrant living in Dubuque, Iowa, suggested that's because in a small town like that in the Midwest, there's no public transport and no taxis. 
barely even Uber. So if you want to go out for a drink, you either have to go out in a group with a designated driver or you just drink drive. I guess there's less traffic and the roads are straighter, but it's still not good. So my conclusions about beer in the USA is that there's a lot of it. and It's strong. And if you skip past the big brewers lager, it's mostly pretty damn good. Just dear clear of the sours. Now, you heard earlier from Stephen, from Stephen on the Move, when he was talking about the Czech Republic. But he's an American who now lives in Japan. And he's now going to tell us all about Japanese beer and his experiences of sampling beer over there. It's not a country that many people think of when they think of beer. I mean, they think of alcohol, they think of the rice wines and things like that, the sakis. But Japan has a bit of a beer culture, and Stephen's now going to tell us about it. As an American moving to Japan, I was not exactly sure what to expect with regards to beer and alcohol here. I am in general familiar with the big Japanese brands that export to the United States and that typically export throughout the world, such as Sapporo, Asahi, and Kirin. Uh, what I learned upon moving to Japan is that they are actually a big four in Japanese beer, Asahi, Sapporo, Kirin, and then the fourth big one is Suntory, which may be better known outside of Japan because of its award-winning whiskies. And then there's a fifth brewery based in Okinawa called Orion, or as most Westerners pronounce it, Orion, uh, which is a notably smaller number five, but is a still very sizable brewery within Japan. Most of their beers are rice lagers and are very light in flavor, light in taste, uh, light in calories, and generally pair well with your traditional Japanese cuisine, whether you're talking about noodles or ramen in particular, uh, sushi, etc., and other fishes. All of that works very well because it allows the food to really come through and you don't have a beer that overpowers anything. I wasn't really sure what to expect as far as craft beer in Japan or microbreweries. I struggled at first to really find any in the bigger grocery stores that were near me. And so it took time to find a local liquor store where I could actually buy craft beer that was Japanese craft beer. Uh, the other really interesting thing with regards to the American craft beer that's available in Japan is that it tends to be a lot of West Coast breweries. So breweries from California, Oregon, Washington specifically. Every so often, uh, neighboring states in particular, I see a lot of Revision Brewery, which is based in Nevada. And so that was very new and surprising to me because it introduced me to a lot of breweries that despite being an American and thinking I was very knowledgeable about the American craft beer scene, I'd never heard of many of these breweries. Uh, but yet they were exporting uh, in fairly large numbers to Japan. Uh, Japanese craft beer is still a very small segment of the beer market in Japan, uh, mostly because of taxes related to how alcohol is priced and that's a much longer conversation, but there's a tiered system based upon the amount of grain that is utilized in beer that affects the taxes uh, that are incorporated into the price that people are paying. And so that gave rise to 
uh, what is called haposhu, which is often called like third category beer or beer like uh, because it has a really low wheat grain content. So it's it's still alcoholic. It is still you know going to be about five to six percent alcohol by volume, but the taste is dramatically different compared to beer, especially compared to even an Asahi Super Dry or a Sapporo Black Label Draft or Kirin Ichiban Shibori, which are the beers that people outside of Japan are probably most familiar with. The craft beer market in Japan has been growing since about the mid-1990s when they started to change some of the legislation here. Uh, the most interesting thing that I've realized living in Japan regarding beer is that I can order it online and have it shipped to my house the next day cold. That is still something I am blown away by on a regular basis because in the United States and especially in the southern United States, uh, growing up in Georgia, living in Alabama for a number of years, that just is not something that happens in the U.S. And so to be able to order a beer and get it delivered cold is just something I'm still adjusting to even two years after moving to Japan. I never did understand the obsession with having beer cold. In my experience, beer should be kind of room temperature because that gives it more flavour. Just to stick it in the fridge and have it chilled just seems like just all tastes a bit boring and bland. But then my experience of lagers is that's kind of the best way to taste them. But anyway. One other thing that's true the world over in regard to beer is often breweries have a light-hearted approach to beer names and beer add-ins. In the USA, Funky Buddha Brewery in Fort Lauderdale has Hop Gun, oh dear, for a hoppy IPA, and Wide Awake It's Morning, which is a coffee porter with maple and bacon, or breakfast in a bottle, as it's been known as. Back home in the UK, Brewdog brews a clockwork tangerine and has an alcohol-free beer called Nanny State, whilst Tiny Rebel, noted for being based only a couple of miles from where my new job will be located, use their Welsh origins to bilingual advantage. They have a fruity beer called Club Tropicana, where club is spelt Welsh way, C-L-W-B, and another beer called Kutch, which is one of the loveliest Welsh words around. It's a word for a special type of cuddle, but one that can be both asexual and aromantic if need be. Brewster's Brewery, based in Grantham, Nottinghamshire, even has a beer called Aromantica, but as far as I can tell, it's not a reference to sexual and romantic orientation. Well, that's about all for this week. My next episode, Technology Willing, I'm planning on it being on other types of alcohol, because while I'm in that groove, why not? Until then, make regular backups, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. I'm pretty bad at that sort of thing myself, so I'll understand perfectly if you don't. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited and produced in the Sheffield studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on the Grass, bonus by Kai Engel, which is available via the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. 
Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. Until next week, have safe journeys. Bye for now. Thank you.